Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner. In this special weekend podcast, Glenn talks about the Trump indictment. First, he begins with a step-by-step breakdown of what to expect on Tuesday when the indictment is unsealed. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. So this is the Justice Matters Donald Trump indictment edition. And I want to open our discussion today by saying, Happy Accountability Day, friends. I'm not going to call this Indictment Day or Donald Trump Indictment Day. I'm going to call this Accountability Day. Because if we pull back to the 30,000-foot overview, with this indictment of Donald Trump that was delivered by a New York grand jury, never again can a president rest comfortably in the belief that he can commit crimes with impunity. Gone are those days. Before this indictment was handed down, every single president of the United States who committed crimes, Richard Nixon springs to mind, every president who committed crimes could rest comfortably in the belief, the reasonable belief that they are not going to be indicted or otherwise held accountable criminally for their crimes. Those days are now behind us. We have taken a couple of steps away from becoming a banana republic. Friends, I've been saying for years, we don't become a banana republic by prosecuting criminal politicians who commit crimes against we the people. We become a banana republic by declining or refusing to prosecute high government officials and politicians who commit crimes against we the people. So it's a very good day that Donald Trump has been criminally indicted for just some of the crimes he committed. Okay, here is our agenda for the day, friends. We are going to start with a beat-by-beat breakdown of what we can expect on Tuesday when the indictment against Donald Trump is unsealed. We're going to talk about, you know, whether there will be a perp walk, whether he will be fingerprinted, whether he will have his arrest photo slash mug shot taken, what do police booking procedures look like, and then we're going to shift over to the court. What will his arraignment involve? An arraignment is a fancy term for your first court appearance. The first eyeball to eyeball between a defendant and a judge, and that is when things get very real for the defendant. And yes, Donald Trump has now earned a new title 
probably the most important title he will ever have, at least from the perspective of we the people, and that is Defendant Trump. Hopefully nobody will ever again call him, you know, former President Trump. He is forever Defendant Donald Trump. And we'll start with a beat-by-beat breakdown of what to expect beginning on Tuesday. Then we're going to move on to talking about the other cases. What about the other cases that are moving in the direction of indictment? Fawnie Willis down in Georgia, right? Soliciting election fraud down in Georgia, which we all know Donald Trump was caught on audio tape doing. We'll talk about Jack Smith, special counsel's investigations of Donald Trump for the insurrection and for the classified documents crimes at Mar-a-Lago. We'll also talk about the possibility of other DOJ investigations. We'll take on what's going on in these other cases and what might we expect now that the first indictment has dropped, now that the maiden legal voyage is underway. It has set sail. There's a criminal prosecution of a former president of the United States. How might that impact the other cases? And then we'll kind of segue into, okay, what happens when multiple jurisdictions are prosecuting the same guy at the same time? Because that's what's in store for defendant Trump. He will be a defendant in multiple jurisdictions at the same time, I predict. Once Georgia indicts him, once the feds indict him, what does it mean? What does it look like when multiple jurisdictions are all prosecuting the same guy simultaneously? Well, I've been in that situation in a very concrete way many times. When I was prosecuting somebody in the courts of Washington, D.C., and that person was also charged across the jurisdictional line up in Maryland or across the river in the courts of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So we'll talk about how we prosecutors ordinarily approach that challenge. Multiple jurisdictions going against the same defendant at the same time. And then we're going to talk briefly about the political implications, right? There are some people who are saying this is going to strengthen Donald Trump politically. There's some people saying this is going to weaken Donald Trump politically. Now, I'm not a political expert or analyst and friends. I don't even try to play one on TV. But I've got some thoughts, at least from a career prosecutor's perspective, about all of these political observations that are being made, about the implications, the consequences politically of indicting a president, former president, who is also a candidate for the presidency again. And then we're going to finish up with something that is equal parts horrifying and potentially really galvanizing and and ultimately really important, I think, for the future of our democracy. And that is what I'm going to call the line of demarcation. A line has been drawn, and it's been drawn distinctly and vividly, and on one side of that line is the lawful, and on the other side of that line is the lawless, because politicians are already choosing up sides. Which side of the line do they choose to be on, the lawful or the lawless? And once they make that choice, 
then damn it, it needs to be held against them. It needs to be held against them every time they run for office. This is an important line of demarcation. And that's how we're going to finish up our discussion today. But as I say, you know, we start with the 30,000 foot overview because we have heard over and over and over and over again that you can't go after a former president of the United States. Why? Because there's no precedent. It's never been done before. Well, guess what? It never had to be done before. No president was ever criminal enough, reckless enough, unpatriotic enough, despicable enough, callous enough to try to overthrow the will of the American voters and retain the power of the presidency illegally and unconstitutionally. No president until Donald Trump. So of course it's never been done before. Yes, it's unprecedented, but guess what? Not anymore, it ain't. Nobody can ever say after March 30th of 2023, that's the date we learned that District Attorney Alvin Bragg in New York had indicted Donald Trump. Never again can anybody say, you can't charge a former president of the United States because it's unprecedented. No, it's not. Now it's precedented. It's been done. And no future president will ever be able to rest comfortably believing he or she, hopefully will be able to refer to an American president as she one of these days. No president will ever be able to rest comfortably in the belief that they can commit crimes with impunity, that they can never be indicted because it's unprecedented. Well, now it's been done. And that is perhaps the most powerful deterrent imaginable. Every president in the future will forever have in the back of their mind, if I commit crimes in my capacity as president, I could be indicted for those crimes because it's been done before. Frankly, I believe the indictment is more important than the conviction, but we'll be talking about that in the future. So let's talk about what happens on Tuesday, a beat by beat breakdown of what we can expect when Donald Trump shows up at the police station in Manhattan to be booked. First of all, I think it very unlikely there will be a perp walk. In white collar cases, when, you know, it's not a violent crime case, the defendant is not out in the streets running and gunning and hurting people, prosecutors will often let white collar defendants voluntarily turn themselves in, a self-surrender. They usually set a time, they set a location, either at the DA's office or at the police station, for the defendant to show up, usually with his or her lawyers in tow, to be booked, to be processed, and then to head over to court to be arraigned. That first eyeball to eyeball with the judge. And that's what I suspect will happen here. A voluntary surrender will be negotiated by Alvin Bragg's team and Donald Trump's defense lawyers, because of course Donald Trump has Secret Service protection, and all of that has to be coordinated. Now, if he decided to hole up in Mar-a-Lago, 
and you know he's like you ain't taking me easy copper well then we would be having a whole different discussion but unless and until that happens we're not gonna waste our breath talking about it now particularly because his lawyer Joe Takapina has said no 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 he will be turning himself in in fact Takapina said and I think I can quote this he's not gonna hold up down at Mar-a-Lago we're gonna go ahead and turn him in and let him be processed and then we're gonna challenge these charges in court of course we still don't know what the charges are precisely other than there's been reporting that there are 30 charges in the indictment Ooh, that's a lot of crime so he will turn himself in once he arrives at the police station he will be booked what does booking look like what does booking involve first and foremost it involves filling out lots of police forms these are forms I've reviewed thousands of times as a 30-year prosecutor they gather up basic biographical information from the arrestee the person that they are arresting and booking they get address information employment information family information you know all of which seems a little silly because all of this information is publicly known when it comes to Donald Trump but they're gonna follow the police procedures that they would follow if they were booking anybody at least in as much as they're filling out the necessary police paperwork then they will fingerprint Donald Trump then they will take arrest photos or what are often referred to as mug shots of Donald Trump and ordinarily even though technically arrest photos are not matters of public record they are generally released to the public or I should say they are often released to the public and to the media so we will be seeing Donald Trump's mugshot I suspect I've also seen reporting that part of the arrest process may include taking a DNA sample which will look like a cheek swab used to be we would take blood and we would pull head hair but now basically DNA technology has advanced so far so fast that they just take a, a swab from the inside of a an arrestee's cheek you know I started prosecuting in the 80s when we didn't have DNA evidence right you know if you got evidence you had to dust it for prints and here is a little inside baseball we never almost never got usable latent fingerprints off of items of evidence but Here's an example that I always use to my criminal justice students at George Washington University when I'm talking about the advances in DNA technology, particularly forensically, as it's used in you know, the criminal justice system and in trials. You know, if we needed to prove who was driving a car, let's say at the moment of impact, if it was a vehicular homicide, for example, and we had the car as evidence back in the 80s when I started prosecuting as an army JAG. I prosecuted court-martial cases. What would we do? Well, we would, you know, dust the steering wheel for fingerprints. We would dust the rearview mirror because whoever's adjusting the rearview mirror is potentially the person driving the car. The side view mirror, the door handles, and you know that would be at least one indication of who is driving the car now recognize if five people are driving the car over the course of a week you might get five different fingerprints off a steering wheel or a rearview mirror you might get no usable latent prints because latent prints are very easily destroyed they're smudged they're smeared it can be hard to get enough 
points of comparison. It's a term of art when you have a latent print, an unknown print, a print that you pull off a piece of evidence, and you want to compare it to a known print, a known fingerprint of a suspect who has their inked fingerprint impressions on a police fingerprint card somewhere. When you compare those two things, you have to have a certain number of points of comparison before you can declare that it's a match. I've presented expert fingerprint analysis testimony many, many times over the years, but I will say getting usable prints is rare. That's the way we used to print cars, for example, back in the 80s, or we used to process cars for evidence. Now, what do we do? Well, we go right to the airbag, assuming it deployed during the crash, during the impact, and we swab the airbag for skin cells, epithelial cells, for DNA. Because you know what? If you're driving a car and that airbag deploys and it smashes you in the face, you've left your DNA all over that airbag. And boy, that's a much better indicator, a much more compelling piece of evidence than getting fingerprints off of cars, right? So Donald Trump will be fingerprinted. I've seen reporting that in New York, every state has its own procedures with respect to when DNA samples can be collected from an arrestee. But I've read that uh, in New York, he is likely to have a DNA sample taken during the booking procedure. He will be advised of his Miranda rights. Of course, he has the right to remain silent, but does Donald Trump have the ability to remain silent? remains to be seen. His lawyers will be there and they will tell him, uh, yeah, Mr. Uh, President, shut up. How many times do we have to tell you? And you never do. I suspect he will invoke his Miranda rights, his right to remain silent, his right to a lawyer, and he will not be making a statement to the detectives who seek to interview or interrogate him. And then off to court he goes for his arraignment, his first eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball with the judge. A meeting between the judge and defendant, Donald Trump. Coming up next, Glenn discusses what will happen during Trump's arraignment. This is Justice Matters. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On Tuesday, Donald Trump will be in New York for his booking and arraignment. Will the judge impose a gag order or travel restrictions on Trump? Here's Glenn. What will that arraignment hearing look like? Well, there are a few things that will go on during that first court hearing. 
he will be arraigned on the charges, on the indictment. All that means is the judge or a clerk of the court will read the indictment to him. Now, ordinarily, the first thing a defense attorney will do is waive formal reading of the charges, enter a plea of not guilty, put certain demands on the record, timely discovery, a request for all Brady information, and they will ask for a status hearing to be set. Now, you know, with Donald Trump's team, who knows, they may make all kinds of outlandish claims and arguments for the really benefit of the public, not for the benefit of the court or the judge, because I think what we can expect is Donald Trump's legal team will probably more vigorously try this case in the court of public opinion than try this case in the court of law, right? And I suspect they will be using both facts and alternative facts in the arguments they offer in favor of their client, Donald Trump. Hopefully the judge will have none of it, shut them down. But they will put on the record a number of requests. They will enter a plea of not guilty. They will probably waive formal reading of the charges. I have had some defendants say, nope, I want the indictment read out loud in open court. And then the clerk will have to read all of the indictment. This indictment reportedly has some 30 charges in it. So it will be an interesting read if we hear it read or if once we get to read it ourselves. And then the topic will turn to what I think is the most interesting and potentially the most important aspect of the arraignment hearing. That will be what does the judge do with defendant Trump pending trial? Now, I think in everybody's estimation, it's very unlikely Donald Trump will be jailed pending trial, not just because he's, you know, wealthy, connected, influential, powerful, and white, though that often has something to do with whether somebody is jailed pending trial or put on release pending trial. In order to detain somebody pending trial, the judge would have to make one of two findings. Either the defendant is a flight risk such that if released would not return for his next court appearance. And ordinarily that has to be proved by clear and convincing evidence, a fairly high evidentiary standard in the criminal law that he's either a flight risk or that he's a danger to the community such that if he were released pending trial, he would be likely to hurt someone. Boy, there's a can of worms, huh? Because Donald Trump is a danger to the community. Donald Trump is a danger to democracy. Donald Trump uses words in an incendiary and inflammatory way, and he uses those words to incite imminent lawlessness he did it on January 6th. He did it at his rallies when he was running for president in 2016. Remember him telling his supporters at his hate rallies, hey, knock the crap out of that guy. And you know, I'll pay your legal fees. Yeah, right, you'll pay your legal fees, right? He would say to the police, when you're putting an arrestee in a car, don't be so gentle, don't put your hand over his head, inferentially, bang his head into the, the door jam. This is Donald Trump. Is he a danger to others? You bet he is. Is he likely to use his platform once again to rile people up, to incite imminent lawless action? You bet he is because he's done it already in this case. 
He's posted things like protest, 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 take our nation back. Remember, he said, I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday. He lied about that. And he said, take our nation back. And he said, by the way, send me money, which his gullible base, some of them did. He's already fundraising, by the way, off of the news that he has been indicted. Shocking. Shocking, I say. So I don't think Donald Trump will be ordered, detained, or jailed pending trial. Notwithstanding the fact that I believe he's a danger to the community and to our democracy. But the judge might set some conditions when the judge releases Donald Trump pending trial. For example, if the judge believes Donald Trump is a flight risk, he may order Donald Trump not to travel outside the United States. If the judge believes Donald Trump's a flight risk, he might order Donald Trump to surrender his passport. Or he might set other conditions that are designed to minimize the risk that Donald Trump may flee rather than continue to appear in court. How about on the dangerousness front? Well, if I were the prosecutor, I would absolutely talk about some conditions on Donald Trump that would limit his ability to incite imminent lawlessness, either by speech or by using the internet, by posting things. He's done it before. He's got priors. If it were me, I would ask for some sort of a narrowly tailored gag order to prevent Donald Trump from inspiring others to violence, which is Donald Trump's MO. Now, let me add that judges are not enamored of gag orders. They don't like them. Why? Because it's prior restraint on speech, and it can run afoul, if you're not careful, of the broad and sweeping First Amendment free speech guarantees and protections. But just as Judge Amy Berman Jackson put some conditions on Roger Stone's pretrial release about not posting certain things on the internet, and of course Roger Stone violated those conditions, I think this judge and these prosecutors should consider putting some sort of narrowly tailored, modest conditions on Donald Trump's speech and on his social media use pending trial. You know what? Donald Trump is entitled to a fair trial, but so are the people of New York, and by extension, the people of the United States. You know, and do you think Donald Trump will post stuff to try to poison the well of the potential jurors who are gonna sit in judgment of Donald Trump at his New York trial? You know he's gonna try to continue to poison the well of public opinion, and he shouldn't be allowed to, because the people also have a right to a fair trial. So those are the things that are gonna to have to be decided at the arraignment hearing, and I don't think a trial date will be set. I think rather an interim status hearing date will be set. The judge may say, come back in a month and we'll discuss things like a motions schedule. In other words, how much time you're gonna need defense and government prosecutors to file any motions you believe are relevant to this case, and then there will be a time set for reply briefs, there will be a time set for oral arguments on the motions. All of these things will take months to work through. 
And then a rule of thumb in a criminal case is assuming a defendant is on release rather than jailed pending trial. If you're jailed pending trial, many jurisdictions have an accelerated set of deadlines to make sure somebody gets to trial promptly if their liberty interest is at stake pending trial. But I think a, a fair rule of thumb is that we probably won't see a trial date any sooner than about 10 months or a year from the date of Donald Trump's arraignment. Now, I think the Trump Organization case took about 16 months to get to trial. And remember, Donald Trump's organization, his namesake, was convicted across the board of all counts because they were running a 15-year-long criminal scheme to defraud in the first degree, massive tax fraud. And I think that one took about 16 months from the time the indictments dropped until the trial. So 10 months, a year, maybe a little longer, I think is a, a fair estimate of how long it's going to take to get Donald Trump to trial. Coming up next, Donald Trump's other cases are also looming in the near future. Will the other indictments cause a tug of war between jurisdictions? This is Justice Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With more than one crime in more than one jurisdiction, Will that present difficulties with the multiple prosecutors that are vying to indict Trump? Here's Glenn. Okay, let's talk about some other cases. We all know Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis down in Georgia is working hard and diligently to, we believe, indict Donald Trump and as many as a dozen others. That's what we've learned. And those indictments could drop today or next week or next month. We just don't know. But, you know, it's kind of interesting if you look at these other cases, you've got Fawny Willis in Georgia, where he was basically trying to unlawfully retain the power of the presidency, right? You have, by soliciting election fraud, telling the Secretary of State down in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, I I don't care, just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner. Come on, how hard can it be, fellas? He even threatened Brad Raffensperger that if you don't, you may be committing a crime. No, Brad Raffensperger was actually upholding the law. He was resisting Donald Trump's efforts to get him to commit crimes. My gosh, it's nothing but projection with Donald Trump and his lackeys and lapdogs and flunkies. 
So Fawnie Willis is making her way toward an indictment. Special counsel Jack Smith in Washington, D.C. is making his way toward indictments in both the insurrection and the Mar-a-Lago documents crimes. And let's look at all these cases just for a minute chronologically, because it's kind of interesting that the first indictment to drop on Donald Trump's head was for something he did. He committed crimes back in 2016 in the run-up to the election, trying to steal the election, right? Trying to hide deeply damaging information about his qualifications as a presidential candidate, trying to bury that, right? Hide it from the American voters, in essence, fooling and robbing us of the full value of our vote. But chronologically, given everything that's being investigated regarding the crimes of Donald Trump, the first indictment to drop seems to be for the crimes he committed earliest in time, back in 2016 when he was running for president. Might the indictments continue chronologically such that we will next see indictments for, for example, Fawnie Willis, for him after he lost the election, trying to hold on to the power of the presidency unlawfully, or maybe Jack Smith's investigation into the insurrection where he was trying to accomplish the same thing, Donald Trump hold on to the presidency unlawfully. And then chronologically, you have to move forward to the documents crimes. After he left the White House, he stole a whole bunch of classified information, highly sensitive national security information, took it down to his third-rate resort in Mar-a-Lago, down in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, and unlawfully retained it all, obstructed justice. His lawyer has now testified against him in the grand jury. You know, it would be interesting to see if the indictments progress chronologically. Don't know if they will or not. But what happens when multiple jurisdictions are prosecuting the same criminal at the same time? Because that, I predict, will be exactly where Donald Trump finds himself, being prosecuted by multiple jurisdictions simultaneously. So let's just assume for the sake of argument and for the sake of fun that Donald Trump is indicted not only in New York, but in Georgia and federally by Jack Smith, the whole ball of wax. So now he has four, because Jack Smith has two, right? the insurrection and the documents crimes. He's now indicted in four separate cases, you know, across three separate jurisdictions, New York, Georgia, and federally, he gets two there. What in the world do these prosecutors do? How do they sort out who takes him to trial first? Where does he have to appear when? What if he's convicted in one case, but he's still pending trial in another case? These are interesting, challenging issues for prosecutors to contend with. So let me use my real world experience because I had to contend with this many times. As a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., I would be prosecuting a defendant, and that defendant was also being prosecuted or perhaps investigated with a view toward an indictment in Maryland, in Virginia, in Florida, in California, virtually anywhere else. And now it was always my goal, my determination to work as closely and as cooperatively with other jurisdictions as was humanly possible with other law enforcement agencies, with other prosecutors, offices. Because, you know, 
in my case that I was prosecuting, I might have any number of victims, but in Maryland they may have victims, in Virginia they may have victims, and what we wanted to keep our eye on is how can we deal with one defendant who is being prosecuted across multiple jurisdictions in an overarching way that makes the most sense for everybody, taking all of the victim's rights and interests into account. We had that in the D.C. sniper case where we had a murder committed in D.C., we had murders committed in Maryland, we had murders committed in Virginia, and we had to coordinate. And that would probably be the subject of an extended Justice Matters episode all itself, how we worked our way through those challenges. And I think we worked our way through those challenges well. And at some point, I'll tell the story about the murder that occurred in D.C. that was committed by the D.C. snipers and how that murder factored into the prosecutions in Maryland and Virginia. So this is something that we particularly in the D.C. metropolitan area contend with as prosecutors. And on the one hand, you know, prosecutors can be a pretty competitive bunch. We're not monolithic, but when somebody's done crime in my jurisdictional backyard and I have victims that I am responsible for in the sense I have to work hard I have to work fair and honorably and ethically, but I have to work hard to help bring justice to what the perpetrator did to them. You know, I took that very seriously. So I didn't want to take a backseat to other jurisdictions, running the risk that maybe the victims and the crimes in D.C. would get short shrift. But you really did need to kind of set your ego aside, set your competitive nature aside, and do what was right in an overarching way. And that, friends, is law enforcement and prosecution at its best. You know, coordinating with other involved jurisdictions to do what's right in an overarching way for all victims, all cases, to hold folk accountable and to protect the involved communities. And I'll tell you, I saw that happen over and over and over again. Prosecution and law enforcement at its best. I've also seen it at its worst. But what I'm hoping is that Alvin Bragg and Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith and anybody else at the Department of Justice who may be involved in investigating the crimes of Donald Trump are doing some coordinating and some communicating because Donald Trump is about to be a defendant, I believe, in multiple jurisdictions. And it's going to become really important to cooperate and to coordinate. I do feel like in the back of my mind, at some point, the feds might have to sort of not take over other cases, but take the lead when Donald Trump is indicted for what are probably the most consequential crimes, the insurrection. Documents are a lesser crime, to my way of thinking, than the insurrection, the attempt of a sitting president to thwart the will of the American voters and retain the power of the presidency unlawfully. Doesn't get any doesn't get any worse. Doesn't get any worse. But coordination and communication is the key, and I hope and I trust that the various jurisdictions are involved in that kind of coordination, communication, and cooperation. Coming up next, how will all this affect the political landscape with Trump running for office again? This is Justice Matters.
Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. People are just beginning to take sides on whether they are for or against the prosecution of Donald Trump. What are the political implications of this indictment, and what will happen next as far as the courts are concerned? Here's Glenn. Let's shift to the political implications of Donald Trump being indicted, because boy, we have been hearing an endless stream of opinions. Many folks are saying, oh, what a miscalculation. You know, guys like Lil Josh Hawley, who I'm gonna talk about in a minute, said they will regret this, said the running man, who when times get tough has to scurry away from danger rather than standing with his people, his staff, his colleagues and helping and protecting them. No, he scurried away, that little running man, Josh Hawley. And now he posts, he bravely, bravely posts tweets, brave, brave Sir Lancelot, borrowing from Monty Python, bravely post tweets like, they will regret this. Come on, Josh, sit down. So what about the Josh Hawleys and the little Lindsey Grahams and the cowardly Mike Pences, all of whom are staking out positions? Oh, this is just going to strengthen Donald Trump. You know, this is, this is going to galvanize his support. And then you have folks on the other side saying, no, I think if a candidate is under serious felony indictment, which this likely will be once we see it unsealed in New York, I don't think that necessarily will earn him any new voters. And it may even peel away some of the, you know, weaker members of his base. But people are staking out these positions. It's good for Donald Trump. It's bad for Donald Trump. Let me talk about it from the perspective of a prosecutor. You know, the people who are involved in trying to hold Donald Trump accountable for his crimes. We don't care. When we're prosecuting, we don't care what folks say about our prosecutorial decision. Everybody I decided to charge I would encounter anger and upset and resistance from one group of folk, maybe the group of folk associated with the defendant or the conspiracy or the 
criminal organization I was indicting, or I would, you know, receive upset and anger and criticism from another group of folk. If I declined to prosecute somebody, that might make the victim, the victim's family, the victim's community very upset, angry with me for declining to prosecute someone. I always found it very liberating, friends, that I knew every time I made a prosecutorial decision, somebody wouldn't like it. Somebody would criticize it. There would be collateral consequences. And when I look at the political implications of bringing a righteous prosecution against Donald Trump, I, I would call those collateral consequences. I don't care. Prosecutors don't care. They shouldn't care. You know why? Because if prosecutors start making prosecutorial decisions based on collateral consequences, the people on one side of the argument or the people on the other, the people in the defendant's corner or in the victim's corner, if we start making our prosecutorial decisions based on those factors, then we are lost. We are lost because we have to tune all of that out. We have to be not impacted by any of it. And we have to make our decisions based on the facts and on the law. We do what's right based on the facts, based on the law, not based on collateral reactions or consequences, who we're going to anger, who we're going to make happy. So I don't care if it wins Donald Trump more support or if Donald Trump loses support as a result of being indicted. He was indicted because the evidence militated in favor of an indictment of accountability for the crimes he committed. And I get sick of people saying, the Trump supporters saying, oh, these are just minor business crimes, false business records, not a big deal. He was committing these crimes to steal the presidency. That's a big deal, right? It's not just, I'm gonna pay somebody off because I don't wanna upset my wife, no. He was committing these crimes, 30 of them, reportedly, to steal the presidency, to gain unfair advantage in a presidential election. No, it's not just a false business record. But I'll leave the rest to the political pundits. I don't think prosecutors care one whit if it earns Donald Trump votes or it loses Donald Trump votes because that's not what drives our prosecutorial decisions. And friends, I want to finish up with this and it sort of relates to what I was just saying regarding the positions being staked out by, you know, running man Josh Hawley or, you know, weepy Lindsey Graham. If you saw him give an interview with tears in his eyes about how horrible it is Donald Trump is being indicted for his crimes, just uh, it's beyond belief. When you go back and watch that clip of weepy Lindsey, unbelievable. Or Mike Pence taking the position that, oh, this, this is just a terrible thing that a, a, a former president is being indicted for his crimes. These p 
people have made a choice. Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, who posted that Florida will obstruct justice. That's the message he sent. Florida will unconstitutionally block any extradition of Donald Trump for him to face charges in New York. Do you know how dangerous that is? For a governor to say, I don't care about the Constitution. I don't care about the law. I don't care about a grand jury's determination in New York that the evidence proves Donald Trump committed crimes such that he should be indicted. I don't care about any of it. I care about protecting a criminal former president. Why did DeSantis say that? We know why. Because he thought maybe it would help him with Donald Trump's supporters. It's about power. It's about elections. It's not about right or wrong. It's not about morality. It's not about being loyal to the Constitution. It's about the acquisition of power. So yeah, Ron DeSantis, Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, Mike Pence, and all the other Donald Trump flunkies, those weak, weak men, have planted their feet firmly on one side of the line of demarcation, the lawless side. And let's never, never forget that or let them walk away from that. They need to be voted out because they are a danger to our democracy if these little men are allowed to acquire or retain power. And the people who plant their feet firmly on the other side of that line of demarcation, the lawful side, are the people who we can at least begin to entrust with power. That line of demarcation needs to be burned into the, the public psyche and everybody on the lawless side. And for gosh sakes, it's not about politics. It's not about whether you carry an R or a D after your name. You know, there are folks with R's after their name who have planted their feet on the lawful side. Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, and others. So it's not about politics. It's about the Constitution. It's about an allegiance to the rule of law. It's about faith in our government officials. It's about honor and integrity and decency. So, yeah, we're going to need to populate the sort of area on either side of that line of demarcation. And everybody who plants their feet with Lindsay and Josh and Pence and DeSantis need to be held accountable, need to be voted out, because they can't be trusted with power. They would rather support a criminal president who runs roughshod over the people who violates the laws of the United States, who victimizes we the people, they can't be entrusted with power. They need to be out. All right, folks, I'm going to leave it there. It has been a very full 24 hours. I had the good fortune of being on air most of yesterday, uh, right through not only Stephanie Rule at 11, but Lawrence O'Donnell, who, who had special 1 a.m. coverage. And then we were back at it at 7 a.m. this morning. But I was so excited to sit down with you all and, you know, talk about this on our Weekend Justice Matters 
podcast. I will end where I started, wishing you all a happy accountability day and embracing the reality that no president can ever rest comfortably in the belief that they can commit crimes with impunity because gone are those days. Friends, if you want to find me elsewhere, you can find me on YouTube, the Justice Matters channel on YouTube where I post a daily video seven days a week analyzing the legal issue of the day. You can also find me over on Patreon, patreon.com, where you can go and you can sign up to become a patron. You can support our all-volunteer efforts, our mission, our content. We are an all-volunteer operation here. You know, we do this for a love of justice. We greatly appreciate the support of our friends who go over to Patreon. And if you do sign up to become a patron, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers, a personal handwritten note. You'll get all kinds of behind-the-scenes glimpses of what we do here at Justice Matters. And I am posting on Patreon pretty much every day, something or another. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm on post these days, though I don't always remember to get over there. On Facebook, on Instagram, it's all Glenn Kirshner 2 my name and then the number two. And then finally, you can find me at my website, glennkirshner.com, where I invite you to drop me a message, drop me a note. I read them all. I try to respond to some, as many as I can, not all. But if you want to pose a question, I review all questions and try to incorporate some in future Justice Matters podcast episodes. So I think those are all of the different places you can find me. And boy, things I think, if they haven't turned a corner, you know, I I think we can say that we're moving in the direction of accountability in a way that didn't seem like we were moving, at least not concretely in the last couple of years. So I'm exhausted and I'm energized. It's an interesting cycle, but I think I'm more energized than I am exhausted at this point. And I thank you for tuning in to this weekend Justice Matters podcast. As always, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.